people don't want their lives fixed. Nobody wants their problems solved. Their dramas, their distractions, their stories resolved, their messes cleaned up. Because what would they have left? Just the big, scary unknown. Chuck Polinick. Forget not the past. The past prepares us for the present. The present equipped us for the future. Layla Gifty Akita. The object of a new year is not that we should have a new year. It is that we should have a new soul and a new nose. New feet, a new backbone, new ears, and new eyes. Unless a particular man made New Year's resolutions, he would make no resolutions. Unless a man starts afresh about things, he will certainly do nothing effective. G.K. Chesterton Don't let the new year get old. Anthony T. Hanks A vital part of the journey is the beginning. It is perhaps the most vital part. Rochelle E. Goodrich Begin again. Begin again. Every year, every day, every moment. Begin again. Shellen Lubin See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God, Isaiah 43, verse 19. Amen. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to our new series, Resolution, where for the next four weeks, we're intentionally leaning into just that a new year, a new us, a new a mission and vision for like how God is leading us to the future. And in particular, for these next number of weeks, listening to what God is saying in us, to us, and through us as we form these new habits as people who follow Jesus, as people who are asking questions about what it means to follow Jesus, and as people who are part of this spiritual community called The Meeting House, as we wanna reflect who Jesus is in our everyday <laughs> lives. And so now by round, I'm one who loves like New Year's, New Year's resolutions, um, taking a look at things that probably need to stop or, or like become less in my life and taking a look at like some goals that I have moving forward. How many by round of applause here this morning or even checking us out uh, online across all of our sites, by round of applause would say, yeah, let's do this, New Year's. By round of applause. Okay, yeah, very good. And how many of you would say this is much too early for energy, Jimmy? And you'd give New Year's a bit of a meh. That's what I expected from the mess. Very, 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 very good. Well, you've probably heard it said that there's good, actually, biological research that says if you do something, if you form a resolve in yourself to do something each day for three to four weeks, 21 to 28 days, it becomes habit forming. And so your brain creates this new way of like, it begins the, 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 the stages of forming new, new neuropathology of like, this is what we do with our lives. This is how we orient our day. This is how we derive our energy sources. And the same is true for our walks with Jesus, obviously. In fact, we're part of a rich uh, and ancient Christian tradition of like looking back, where have we come from and resolving to move forward in the likeness, the embodiment of Jesus. In fact, there's a number of Jewish festivals that are, are um, marked around just those questions. Where have we been? 
Where are we now and where are we headed? And so it's no mistake that for the next three or four weeks, these next 21 to 28 days, we want to spend some time in that pocket as a church, taking a look at like, God, what are you saying in us, to us, and through us as we resolve to be a church as brothers and sisters linked arms together, a spiritual family that pursues Jesus and that embodies, that reflects Jesus to each other and to the world around us. And so I'm very, very excited that this is the way that we're um, intending to start out this brand new year. And so brothers and sisters, happy new year. Happy new year. Yes, yes. Well, one of the things that I'm very excited uh, uh, for as we begin is this wonderful brother to my right. Uh, This is Sundar Christian. Give it up for Sundar. Yes. So Sundar has been such a, a wise and wonderful um, brother to the, to the church, but also to the meeting house for a number of years. And you've been a pastor for longer than I have been alive. <laughs> um, and it didn't start that way for right. you, right? You yeah. were in business and marketplace ministry and well, then you yeah, transitioned. Then I, I was trained as an engineer and I worked for 11 years with Atomic Energy of Canada here in right. Toronto. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about how you got from uh, your role as an engineer into pastoral ministry and what those years looked like for you. Right. Fairly soon after I became a follower of Christ, it was my first year of undergraduate school, uh, one of the things I discovered was a love for God's word and both a desire and it seemed like a reasonable ability to teach it. And uh, I never wanted to be anything but an engineer, so, but along with that, I was continuously involved initially through the Ministry of Youth for Christ, or Youth Unlimited, as they know it now. And then when I came here to North America, in Boston for two years to do my graduate work, it was with power to change at that time. So my whole focus was on learning as much as I could, and then being able to teach it to other people. And, uh, and then in 1971, when Sham and I got married, uh, I'd been with Atomic Energy for two years at that time. And because she and her sister used to sing in different churches at different times, and I was teaching Bible study in various groups, we didn't have a home church as such. So somebody told us about Rexdale Alliance Church. So I started worshiping in that church, and we loved it there. And that's where I began to get introduced to some of the unique dimensions of the CNMA, especially the centrality of mission and the sanctified life. And these were all very new concepts to me. But within that local church setting, I continued to use my gifts in teaching adult Sunday school class and teaching here and there. But when the senior pastor of that church uh, received a call eventually to go overseas to uh, begin to plant the alliance in the UK, uh, I was asked by the elders board whether I would consider becoming part of an unusual arrangement where the, uh, the associate pastor was asked to be the senior pastor. He was a great churchman, as it were, a wonderful gift and servant as a servant of the Lord, but didn't have preaching and proclamation gifts. Mm. Well, I was reasonably good as a teacher, but knew nothing else about a church. And so he said, would you both work together? I'm as a preaching pastor and he is the senior pastor. And we kind of did that for about 16 years together. And then uh, when he retired after that, I became senior pastor as well and stayed on for another 20 years. So I was there from 1980 till 2016 when I retired. 1980 to 2016. Holy smokes. Now, uh, it's been interesting, like you've been journeying with our staff team. And one of the things that's like bubbled up as we've been preparing uh, for January, but also like this was kind of the marker of... Um, of the evolution of Rexdale's like reflection process, resolve resolution process in January in, in particular. And so you led your church through a, a bit of a, a, like a January liturgy of yes. something called solemn assembly. Now that's like the first time I heard that I was like, that just sounds like a sad gathering. Like what, 
So January for you, you, um, what was the inspiration behind taking a large church that you uh, had been in and serving at for a number of years to kind of pause the January typical new year, new us, new us, new habits, uh, and, and kind of reflect back in this process called Solemn Assembly? What was the inspiration and then how did it happen in the context of your church? Okay, maybe very quickly I can just describe the Solemn Assembly itself Beautiful. and then come back to so what So it's better than sad gathering. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. no question. Solemn and sad are not necessarily necessarily interchangeable. Although many people would think that, you know, but it's interesting, solemnity, proper solemnity actually paves the way for joy, whereas mere sadness often doesn't, you know. Anyway, this was the name we gave to something that happened in the church from 1992 till 2016, and it continued after that in different forms after I left. Uh, Basically, it was the first full week of every year. We shut down all ministries in the church, encouraged the staff to not take appointments during that time, and basically spent that entire week in both individual and corporately in prayer, you know, in various times of it. So in the evenings, the kind of the liturgy or the rhythm that we ended up on, this was kind of the refined version I'm giving you, it took us a while to get yep. there, was the Sunday night was kind of the launching point where it was mostly a time of worship and heart preparation and stuff like that. And Monday night and Tuesday night were focused almost entirely on, on repentance. Uh, not kind of woe is me, breast beating kind of thing. But you know, you go for annual medical exams and you have the doctor poke you around here and there and wherever you go, ouch. You say, oh, I need to take a look at that. Yep. So this kind of stuff where spiritual heart specialists, as it were, scripture primarily, and other godly men and women through church history helped us explore our hearts and then begin to pray together over that. And then the Wednesday was a turning point where we had a prayer walk through the whole church. Different people, small groups of three or four people will go to different parts of the church and pray over different ministries. Of the, there were 60 or 70 ministries in our church when we started doing this. And we would send groups of three or four over. We'd give them a starting point in the church so everyone wouldn't go to the same place. And then they were just free to stay as long and as briefly in a particular place and pray over those requests and move to another place, and then we'd all gather back in the sanctuary and say, okay, were there any places where did you hear something? It was just amazing. Some years we'd say, five or six groups would say, oh, in the youth ministry. One time it was at, right at the pulpit when we were praying. Somebody said, in your office when we were praying. Mm. So just really away, or say, oh, really, this isn't just us talking to God. God wants to talk to us as well. And that repentance just paves the way. You know, we don't just directly jump into Wednesday. There's some cleaning, house cleaning business that needs to be done, like paving the way for that. And then Thursday and the Friday were more outward focused. Okay. And then about halfway through this process, we had a staff member, in fact, 2002, our worship pastor joined us and he was uh, classically trained in music and whatnot, but he had a real passion not only to mentor the next generation, but he was very much moving in this prophetic charismatic stream as well, but with a lot of wisdom too. And so he was very, very good at discerning the move of the Holy Spirit in community-wise. And he said, Sundar, we need to change the focus on Fridays. We're doing such powerful repentance, prayer walking, intercession. What is God saying to us at the end of this? And so I said, okay, well, Alan, you're better at me than this, so you take over. And he started leading Fridays, and that became the highlight. We had the biggest attendance on Fridays. Mm. The amazing thing about this is you say, well, okay, did you not pray in the church before 1992? Yes, we did. <laughs> but there were two things that were very different about solemn assemblies. One was this extended focus on repentance. Uh, and secondly, the corporate dimension of that repentance. So I just want to comment on a couple of those things. Yeah. So what led, led up to this happening was the 
very typical midweek kind of prayer meeting that used to happen before, and don't knock them because God was obviously at work leading us, but primarily through my readings on a wider scale, becoming aware primarily through the writings of a man named David Bryant, who'd done a lot of work on the global prayer movements, what God was teaching the world, and he was discerning some common patterns that were happening, and this repentance thing kept popping up, you know. But as a precursor, never as an end in itself. Mm. Because God had no desire to just see his children grovel. Sometimes some parents can be like that. Some older siblings can be like that. Some employers can be like that. Some bosses can be like that. We try to get our self-worth by making other people feel bad and grovel. That's not a shred. And we transpose those things into God. And he's not like that at all. We sang an earlier song about you're a good, good father. And he just, he's running after me. He's a God who loves me. And per- but then why? Somebody described it so beautifully in an image that I've never forgotten. He said, it's not like God arbitrarily setting up a precondition of repentance. What he's saying is, you want oxygen, you've got to breathe out the carbon dioxide. There's no point you coming and telling me, no, no, I want to retain all this carbon dioxide inside. I need more oxygen. You can't get it in there, right? You've got to blow the carbon dioxide out, but it's all for the purpose of the oxygen. And that was one big discovery we learned about repentance. Now, the corporate side was also important because the other thing that I learned was, first of all, in the scriptures, it helped me make sense of the fact that Moses and Ezra and Nehemiah and all these people, when they were praying, when Israel had sinned, they just kept praying in the first person plural. But Daniel, you weren't at fault. You were a godly man. Ezra, you weren't at fault. Nehemiah, you were a godly leader. Why are you saying us? Because... I learned something very significant that is completely missing in a highly individualistic society, that we get our identity corporately first before we ever get it individually. Mm. And that's throughout scriptures, throughout most cultures even now, except for 20th century North America. We are individualists, but we get our identity first and foremost from community. And that's community consequences too. So when David sins, all Israel suffered, yeah. you know? And when Achan sinned, all Israel suffered. But of course, the good news is one person doing what is good can also influence a whole society. Yeah. So it's also hopeful at the same time. And so that, the corporate dimension was very important. Also, I learned something as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German saint, uh, he asked a very important question. He said, why is it, why is it that we find it so much easier to confess our real heart condition to God, God but, but to afraid to say to somebody yeah, else, yeah. when it should be the opposite, you're a sinner just like me. Yeah. It should be very easy for me to confess my sin and tremble before a holy God. But I find it very easy to say, sorry, God, but not to you. Yeah. And when I began thinking about that, I realized it was pride, right? Mm-hmm. It was just pride. I, I have this image to maintain before you. And so we realized that God breaks pride through corporate confession and corporate repentance more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And so these two things, my growing understanding of them in the 80s, slowly led to this becoming a huge thing. So that's a, in, in a real, very, very brief uh, way, I think that's uh, how it started. And of course, both John, who was a precursor to Jesus, and Jesus, who is the epitome of good news, what was the first word they both said? Repent. Yeah, repent for the way. Yeah. yeah, so if repentance was a bad word, why did Jesus, the bearer of good news, start there? It is good news, basically because it breathes out the carbon dioxide and gets in the vitality of the oxygen in there. Yeah, and repent doesn't mean like, it wasn't like Jesus or, or John the Baptist were saying like, repent, feel bad because the kingdom, no. near. The, the kingdom is near. Like the, we've, we've talked about before that the Greek word
word for like repentance is uh, metanoia, and yeah. then the Hebrew word is shuv or teshuva, which means change your way of thinking, go the other way, right. like and, move and, towards the kingdom. And that includes change your thinking about what your heart is really like, yeah. you know. And, and the other thing we discovered was that the human heart, especially the, the sins that we call it, they are revealed primarily in the context of relationships. Because it, it is in my relationship with people, and that's why marriage, for those of us who are married know that, it is probably the single most powerful spiritual formation relationship there is. Because all of a sudden, one person knows you better than anybody else, and they bring forth reactions from you that you never thought possible. That's too convicting. Yeah, nope. exactly. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Um, you spent some time with us as a staff and leadership team. Yeah. Uh, and um, Sundar was so gracious with his time, spent an afternoon with us, and then a few more hours with us as a teaching team as well, just walking through this process, like a little bit of the um, the bones of, of the process of Psalm Assembly, right. particular repentance, mm -hmm. uh, and then just listening to God. Mm -hmm. I would love for you to share what were some key themes that you noticed that came out that emerged bubble to the surface as you spent that time with us as a staff team? Interestingly, I think, uh, and actually when we were walking from that meeting over to the group where the teaching team was taking some time to pray, uh, it was something that you said to me, which only someone from the inside could have made that comment. And then I immediately made the connection. You said something along the lines of, not quoting you exactly, is that what happened there right now is not something that we're used to seeing. And I think as we talked about it, what you're referring to was how in, in the prayer time that we had together in the small groups of, a, I think there were four, 25 people in yep. about four or five groups, is that it wasn't just us talking to God, that as people were praying, something that was on my heart, somebody else was praying. And then when someone shared this, oh, I was about to share this when she said it first. And then and you suddenly realize God has been speaking to us while we've been praying. And this is a way in which we learn to hear and listen to God on a regular basis. I think that was, to me, when you said that, I said, okay, I, I get it. Because when I heard it happening, I'm used to that happening. Yeah, yeah. And then when you said, well, that's kind of the first time for many, I thought that was really good. So that yeah. took out, so, number one. The second thing that stood out was when, it was almost a throwaway statement in my teaching time when I referred to, uh, in Ephesians chapter five, when Paul says, when Jesus loves the church, he said he, he, he gave himself the to the church yeah. to present her to himself holy and radiant without blemish and without spot. It was almost a throwaway statement in the context of saying something else. But in the feedback time, what did you hear God? One individual said to me in that group, and that stood out too. You know, I've been kind of been preoccupied with what the bride looks like to society. Today I'm hearing, I need to preoccupy myself with how does the bride look like to the bridegroom? What does Jesus think of the church, this church? I thought, wow, that's profound. That's profound. And I didn't say it, he said it. He heard it, you know, and so that was the second thing. The third thing was somebody else said, we really need to repent corporately of self-sufficiency. Mm. And that's one that dies hard. You know, ours is such a make it happen, you can do it, positive self-esteem. There's nothing that you can't do, society that there is, you know, that it's so easy to become self-sufficient. And I remember the time when John 15 landed with powerful force when Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The question that popped into my mind one day many years ago was, have you felt the full force of nothing? What's the word nothing mean? Nada. Literally nothing. Do we really believe that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing? That was a revelation for me, mm -hmm. to let that sink in. It's a counter to the illusion of self-sufficiency. It's what makes us broken and come to me. Yeah, of course you've given me gifts, God, but you can take them away in one moment. 
If I start trusting in what you have given to me, rather than, if I even trust in my prayers, if I even trust in solemn assemblies more than you, you know, they're all the means to the end. He is the only one worthy of my trust. So I think that was another, those were three or four things. And there was one other thing I think was that we can't rush through. We cannot give in to the pressure to rush through this whole process of dealing properly with the past. Get the carbon dioxide out. Those are the four things I think that kind of stood out for me. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, hmm. So for your process, uh, coming back to your experience in Rex, Rexdale, in particular the later uh, years where this was part of like your, your rhythm as a church, so you would have five full evenings together right. and then the last evening culminated with worship now in our context like we um you know we have the the centralized oakville building that's usable but across all of our other sites it's it's rented space so in particular our gatherings and how this might materialize happens in home church how would you say or what's some like advice that you would give us as a church family um for how this process of solemn assembly might translate to our home church gatherings well i, I think actually it's, it's it's a big plus because, you know, not used to this kind of thing, especially when it comes to corporate confession, when it comes to verbalizing this part of ugly side of me that got revealed in some way in a relationship that I had, in a gossip, in cutting, a cutting remark that I made to my colleague at work, whatever, whatever, it, whatever it may be, to actually voice that to somebody else, that's crushing. And that's exactly what God wants to do. And so... It's very hard to do it with a complete bunch of strangers with you. Whereas if you're in a home group setting, you've been with the same group of people for a while, you've done life together, you've had meals together, you've probably served together, you've already shared a few things about needs in your life, so the illusion of self-sufficiency has been broken down already. And so you're, at least you're a little bit less concerned about maintaining your image there than outside maybe. So it's already well set up to be a perfect, safe environment in which to attempt, in which to make mistakes, in which to maybe say a little bit more, a little bit differently than you might have said otherwise, and know that you're with friends, you know. So as you pick up the ideas, these are very, very easily transferable. In fact, most of our solemn assembly praying with the people who are broken up into smaller groups. They're all groups of four or five anyway. So all of a sudden, if a home group has got 12 people, you've got two groups of four or five there right away. So I would say that's probably as you keep listening to all this stuff over the next little while, that's probably the setting in which you can begin to um, experiment. And I think home group leaders, I think probably you can do some work with trainings, home, home group leaders, in the kind of thing that I did with the staff. If you did that with home group leaders, so they get a sense. That's how I learned. I learned by actually participating in these kinds of things. Said, oh, that's a different way to lead prayer meetings, you know. And so I think that's probably a couple of things. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, so just to summarize, um, the, the inspiration for Solemn Assembly was almost like the exhaling the carbon dioxide yeah. uh, and to make room for the oxygen of the spirit of right. like what God is saying, uh, how we're turning in a different direction, how we're journeying towards joy, learning to pray together, to actually listen to God and understand that God speaks like speaks to us in our hearts and, and our minds and our spirit. And that is his desire. His, his desire is to be in communion yeah. with us. And there are obstacles that get in the way. Yep. And these are all things of clearing the way, clearing the obstacles, you know. Maybe if it's earwax, we can get rid of earwax, <laughs> so we can hear more clearly. Yep. Whatever image works, well, but I think the thing that really persuaded me more than anything else was actual biblical data and the history of the church. Every major revival in the church 
which resulted in the launching of amazing new missions of mercy and evangelism, was preceded by extended times of repentance. I told you. <laughs> well, um, you know, I've had the privilege of just spending hours with you over this. And, uh, you know, in, in a number of our different phone calls and online meetings, it's just been like soaking in the juices of both your experience, but also like the new and fresh vision that you just continue to, to experience walking with Jesus and continue to like lead uh, younger folks like me and, and, and our church. So I've asked Sundar to give us like his best mini sermon in 10 minutes. You ready? Is that good? Yes. All, All right. right. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much. You know, it's just, it's just pure joy just to be able to uh, share what God has done in people's lives. Nothing about what I've done, mostly what I didn't do, and God just comes alongside and helps. So, so thank you for this op- uh, privilege. You know, you've heard Jimmy kind of give, give you the lay of the land a little bit about what's coming ahead, and Quincy's going to be sharing a bit more after he comes back as well, and you've heard me talk to him about one particular individual's journey, one church's journey in this area called Solemn Assembly and Corporate Prayer. What I want to talk about in these last, in this little mini sermon seg- segment, as we wrap up this part of our morning, is the motivation. Why? Why? Why does God want all them? Why is the your leadership is taking you through this that you will hear about in the next three or four weeks? Why this backward looking, this breathing out? And the why is crucial because once we, Viktor Frankl, the man who survived the German concentration camp, said this in his book *Man's Search for Meaning*. Once we know the why, we can endure almost anyhow. Once we know the why, we can endure almost any how. And the why for this, I want to just take you through one particular book, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 8. Uh, you can either just listen to me, some of the verses will probably be on the overhead. Uh, if you want to find it quickly in your Bible, you've got to look at for that golden section where the gold has not been worn away because no one's ever read those portions, you know. It's, it's the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and one book before that is Zechariah. Let me give you some background. Uh, Israel had been uh, in exile. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had ca- conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, where the northern kingdom had been taken away captive in 722 BC. Uh, Judah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, massive world government, as it were, kingdom, had captured the southern kingdom of Judah, and they were in Babylon in exile for 80 years. During that time, king of Persians had dominated the Nebuchadnezzar, and Babylon, or Persia, was now the dominant ruler. And Cyrus, the first king of Persia, was a favorably disposed individual, and he gave permission to the Jewish people who were in exile. If any of you want to go back and rebuild the temple, go ahead and rebuild the temple. Uh, no, they were still under Persian domination, but he said, you can go back. And so a, a group of them went. It's an 800-mile journey, difficult journey, and life in Persia was not too difficult. And so a lot of the people didn't want to go. Why would I go back to rebuild a temple that I'd never seen in a land that I'd never seen? Because if you've been in captivity for 80 years, everybody who's been born during that time are all haven't even seen the homeland, as it were. But three waves of people went back. The first group went back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. And the first thing they did was to rebuild the altar and reestablish worship. And then they were going to start building the temple. But once the foundations of the temple had been laid, the people who were opposing that, the, some of the local people who had been left behind when uh, the 
Sennacherib had conquered the northern kingdom. He had left behind a few people, and there was a whole race of people from whom the Samaritans came that Jesus encountered, who came out of intermarriage between that uh, group of people. They and others opposed the building of this temple. And so they got completely discouraged, and for 16 years, this uh, rebuilding program stopped. And God sent two prophets, an old man named Haggai and a younger man named Zechariah, to preach to them, this time not to confront them with their sins, but that has happened enough, but now to paint a picture of the future for them that would produce passion in them and get them working. By the way, that's a beautiful description, a definition of the word vision. Any, a picture of the future that produces passion in you and gets you working in the present. Very helpful, practical, hands-on definition of vision. And Zachariah's uh, story, the is actually made up of many, many different visions. And all those visions have a picture of what is visible reality and what is invisible reality. Visible reality shows Israel a poor, conquered people because Persia was still under conquered rule. So they've been in captivity for a long time and they didn't know it. They were going to be in captivity for another 500 years before Jesus would show up. And then for 400 years after that as well. But they were still in captivity. That was visible reality. And the nations were all powerful. These big, big nations that were conquering them. That was visible reality. Invisible reality was the exact opposite. God was zealous for his people. And God would oppose the nations that interfered with his plan for his people. And Zachariah's visions are all various ways of presenting this truth. And they all come to a beautiful culmination in Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8 is historically very significant because in the history of the church... It was, has been used to crystallize many, many prayer movements, many of these solemn assembly kind of prayer movements. So I want to kind of walk you through that very quickly. So just to get a flavor. And by the way, every time in these verses you hear the word city, think Oakville. And if you're listening to me at other sites, substitute the name of your city. And every time you hear Mount Zion, think of your church. Think of the, temp, the place where you're gathered together. And to, if you want a way of transposing the words and catching a vision of what God is saying here. <clears throat> and so just let me read a few of these verses. First of all, in verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My love for Mount Zion, church, is passionate and strong. I'm consumed with passion for Jerusalem, Oakville. He begins with God's assurance to Israel about his deep passionate love and zeal for his city and his people. And then he says, and now the Lord says, I'm returning to Mount Zion. He's promising the gift of his presence because that's what they long for. In the history of Israel, you will find that when Moses built the tabernacle in the wilderness, God's glory filled the temple. When Solomon built the permanent building, God's glory filled the temple. And he says, I'm coming back again. So secondly, he promises not only his zeal, but I'm going to show up. I'm going to be present. My glory is going to come back to your gathering. Then he says, thirdly, and this is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, old men and women will walk Jerusalem streets with a cane and sit together in the city squares. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls at play. What a beautiful picture of vitality and wisdom. Old men walking with canes and sitting on the sides. They represent wisdom, the wisdom of the ages. No longer active, but on the sidelines watching and waiting with a source of wisdom. But in the streets, boys and girls. Not enough wisdom, too young, but lots of vitality. And so wisdom and vitality are combining together. Can you imagine what a beautiful picture that would be of revival? That's what God wants. I am zealous. 
I'm coming back and I'm going to breathe new life into you. I'm going to fuse the wisdom of age with the vitality of youth and unleash that upon this city. And then he says in verse 6, and this is what the Lord Almighty says, because some people are going to sit back and say, yeah, you got to be kidding. You see what happened? First the Babylonians, then the Medo-Persians, and they didn't even know about Alexander the Great and Greek and Rome. This is never going to happen. And so what does he say? This is what the Lord Almighty says. By the way, nine times in this chapter, this is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. He wants to make sure they're hearing God speak, not Jimmy, not me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. All this may seem impossible to you now, a small and discouraged remnant of God's people. But do you think this is impossible for me, says the Lord? Of course it's impossible for you. I'm not asking you to do it. You're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm zealous. I'm coming back. I'm going to breathe vitality and wisdom into this congregation. So it's going to happen. Don't worry about that. But here's what you can do. And that's the next point. So see, he, he's promising his passion, his presence, his vitality, his wisdom. And he says, I'll blow away all the obstacles. But what can you do? He says here, this is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 20 to 23. People from nations and cities around the world will travel to Jerusalem. The people of one city will say to the people of another, let us go to Jerusalem and ask the Lord to bless us and to seek the Lord Almighty. We are planning to go ourselves. People from many nations, even powerful nations, will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord Almighty and to ask the Lord to bless them. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from nations and languages around the world will clutch at the hem of one Jew's robe and they will say, please let us walk with you for we have heard that God is with you. What, what an incredible picture. This is what's at stake. This is what's going to happen. There was going to be an outflow of mission and influence that's going to draw all other kinds of people to where you're at. And David Bryant, in one of his books called Concerts of Prayer, that was very formative in my, my journey, calls these four verses having the anatomy of corporate prayer. And I just want to kind of leave four words with you that I got from him that have been helpful with me. And keep them with you as you continue journeying over these next four weeks and see how they help you socket in and fit into this vision. The first one he calls this attitude. Let us go at once to Jerusalem and entreat the Lord. There's urgency, let's go at once. And entreating was a word that was used of women in the pain of childbirth, bearing fruit. So it was intense. So urgency and intensity was the attitude behind. That's what this deserves. A sense of urgency and a sense of intensity, not half-hearted, casual participation. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it was an agenda. What was the agenda for? The agenda was to seek the Lord's face, which is a euphemism, another way of saying seeking the Lord's presence. After all, that's what God promised, right? I'm coming back. So he's promised, God, you said come back, we're coming back. That's why Moses prayed at the end, teach me your way, let your presence go with me, show me your glory. The most foundational prayer that all of us can pray, and we never need to stop praying it, show me your glory. A vision of his glory is the linchpin for everything in our life. And one form or another we need to pray. So attitude, urgency, and intensity, Agenda, God's glory, and his face and his presence. And the impact, 
That's what the impact, he said, is not going to be casual. People are going to hold your robe and say, I want to come with you. Can you just imagine your neighbor saying, showing up at your door one morning on Saturday night and saying, can you please take me to your church on Sunday morning? I need a ride. I need to come. I want to come with you. Why? Because I have heard that God is with you. Not because you have a spectacular program. Not because you have the best AV team in the city, which you do, by the way. <laughs> Not because you have the best speakers, not because, nothing, because we have heard that God is with you. Something magnetic about the felt, and by the way, if you read the history of revivals, you will find that other curiosity seekers that were coming to the place where the revival was ignited often felt the presence a mile away from the city in the trains that were coming into the stations. They felt it. So this is literally what happened. So let your imagination run right. That's, that's why God wants to do it, for this kind of influence and this kind of impact. But the key thing, and that's what it comes down to, the one thing you have to do. What people of one city will go to another city and say, let us go. Let us go. Let us show up the next three weeks in church, in churches, to find out what our leadership has in band for us. And as it culminates in a time of Various gatherings, times of corporate prayer, either in your home groups or here or both, whatever happens in your different sites. And you'll hear more about that from Quincy after we finish. Let us go. One person saying to another, but, but, then they also say this, I myself am going. In other words, I can ask you, I can't force you, but there is one person I can make sure listens to me, and that's me, I myself. So, what is the attitude, urgency, and intensity? What is the agenda? Seek his glory. What is the impact? People flocking to this place because they've heard God is with you, begging for the privilege. And what is the ignition point? Hey, come with me, but I'm going no matter what happens. Let's pray together. Oh God, oh God, all I can say is do it again. Do it again, God, do it again. As that old song used to say, let your glory fall in this place. Let it go forth here from the nations. Let your fragrance rest in this place as we gather to seek your place. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Let us see on earth the glory of your son. Father of creation, the world has yet to see the full release of your promise, the church in victory. Turn to us, Lord, and touch us. Make us strong in, our, in your might. Overcome our weakness that we could stand up and fright. Ruler of the nations. The world has yet to see the full release of your promise, the church in victory. Turn to us, Lord, and touch us. Make us strong in your might again. Let your glory fall in this room. Let it go forth from here to the nations. Let your fragrance rest in this place as we gather to seek your face. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen.